You know what it's like when you're waiting for the game to begin? Or you're waiting for, uh, have to get up front and make that speech in school or something, you know? That's <laughs> just kind of the way I was feeling this morning. I was just over there going. <laughs> and then it was my turn, and I was like, whoops, I'm not even ready yet. But uh, just kind of in the moment, just kind of worshiping, just kind of anticipating. It's good to be anticipatory when you come to worship, isn't it? Just, oh, yeah, God's going to be there. My friends are going to be there. My not-so-friends are going to be there. Oh. Oh, yeah. My weirdos are going to be here. And just good to open God's Word and share together this morning. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. We read this last week, talked about it. We're going back. Again today, stand together, you can follow along on the screen, or you can keep your Bibles open and follow along there. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, because he was in prison, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness." How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we bow before you in anticipatory prayer, just inviting you, thanking you, and then believing that you are here and and you want to speak to us today. So I pray that you will help us as we get out of the gate and begin to run this race this morning and another week. Another week to serve God. Help us to grow in you. And help us to get busy for you. And help us to allow you to get busy in us. And thank you, Lord, for Paul writing these words in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. These verses that we read, uh, this Thanksgiving portion of Paul's letter, as I told you last week, is one long Greek sentence. I would hate to try to diagram that. I don't think they diagram sentences anymore, but used to be we had to diagram sentences. That would have been a, uh, a board full. Last week, we covered most of this Thanksgiving section talking about the fellowship, the koinonia that we share as Christians. We have a shared history, shared prayers, shared suffering, shared joy, shared grace, and shared spreading of the gospel. A lot of things that we share that that Paul was, was sharing with them here in this Thanksgiving portion. This week I want to center our thoughts on Paul's emphasis in verse 6. And remember, the verse markings weren't in there, but that makes it nice for us to be able to say the middle of that Thanksgiving section. But really it's verse 6. I want to really hone in on that today. There's so much here that I isolated it for one service one Sunday um, and, and kind of skipped over it last week, other than just reading it. 
He says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's even a song based on this verse. Have you ever noticed how one small word can change the meaning or the emphasis of a sentence (laughs) or a line of thought? Today we live in a day of texting and uh, all kind of things, but texting is one of the big ways um, that people share. And, and now we've gotten so lazy with our thumbs. It used to be people had big thumbs because that's all the. That now you just talk and it writes the words for you. I wish they'd had that when I was in seminary because they have these programs on computer now where you can just talk and it prints the words. You can do your whole paper about half the time. Back in the day when we had typewriters, I hand wrote it. And then Debbie stayed up and typed it. Those are the good old days. Anyway, nowadays you just talk and it puts the words out there. But don't you love it when you're talking and then you go to hit send and all of a sudden, whoops, that's not what I said. Right? Right? What a difference one word can make. Because those get sent out, and all of a sudden the person on the other end is going, did you really mean this? Ha ha, laugh out loud, or whatever. And they're sending it back to you because that certainly wasn't what you meant. So a word of warning, before you hit send, reread. Right? Okay, just just letting you know. Um, Because I believe Paul was very specific when he wrote his letters. He wanted his readers to get specific points and to learn particular truths, so he chose specific words on purpose to get his points across. That's why we spend so much time sometimes getting into maybe the Greek text or whatever the case in in order to to really understand what was Paul meaning. And and the, the problem Paul had is, or the advantage that Paul had is he didn't have Alexa or Siri or Google or anybody else to mess things up for him. When he wrote it down or had it written down, it was, this is what I want you to say, word for word. And today I want to point out a small word that Paul chose to use That makes a big difference for us as Christians as we grow in our relationship with God. But before I get to that one word, I want to look at the big picture, which is where we go for point number one. The focus of Christianity. The focus of Christianity. Have you ever noticed that Christianity focuses mainly on two main areas? Most of our conversations Most of our hymns, I was looking through the hymn book, and I think about the songs that we sing a lot of times. Most of our songs, most of our Bible lessons, most of our sermons, most of the verses that we memorize are chosen or arranged to emphasize two main truths. Salvation from sin is the first truth, and the second truth is eternal life in heaven. 
I mean, even songs that talk about other things, sometimes on the fourth verse, they'll, they'll throw in a verse on heaven. It's just kind of interesting to me that these two themes are the majority of focus of Christianity. Now, don't get me wrong. I love this focus. Both salvation and eternal life became possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus dying on the cross to purchase our salvation and to give us the ability whereby we can go to heaven, that should be the focus of Christianity. I have no problem with this. I use these truths while witnessing to sinners. I used them when I was praying with hospice patients, when I was a hospice chaplain. It would come up almost every time I prayed. And I still use it even today, a lot of times in my prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross so that we could have salvation from sin and eternal life with you in heaven. It is the main focus of Christianity, the belief about Christ, the spiritual life that we are to live. We use them all the time in sermons. Christmas and Easter center on these two truths because Jesus came to earth, live, teach, die for our salvations, and he rose again from the grave, sent it into heaven to be our intercessor and to prepare an eternal home for all his followers. That's what Jesus promised. I go to prepare a place for you. So as you read verse 6 again, notice that Paul mentions these two things. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, that's salvation. We'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ, heaven. Uh, rapture, heaven, judgment, future. All right. So I, I noticed that. He who has begun a good work in you and the day of Jesus Christ. So s- salvation is the beginning point. Heaven is the ending point for spiritual life here on earth, what we call Christianity. It is the focus. It is the main focus. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? I mean, even when you learn the, uh, go to the door and, and ask people the, the question, the first question is, if, if you were to get to heaven and ask why you should be let in, what would your answer be? You'd say, because Jesus saved me from my sins. You know, so the whole thing is, is constantly being played as the focus of Christianity. And remember that salvation and eternal life are not something that we can give to ourselves. Salvation and heaven are gifts that God gives to us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. What is, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, that's salvation, (laughs) shall not perish but have eternal life, which is heaven. So the focus is even right there in our probably most oft-quoted verse of Christianity. Salvation, eternal life, gifts of God. All right. So my first point is that the focus of Christianity, and rightly so, is on two things. What God has done for you. Amen. What God has done for you. 
Now, Paul emphasizes those, but he emphasizes something else in this passage. Something else. The need of individual Christians. There's the focus of Christianity, but what that's the general focus. And we each individually have to deal with that issue. But what is the need that I have every day, you have every day, as an individual Christian? Hmm. Let me read this verse and change one word and see if it matters. Verse 6, being confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work for you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Make any difference? We talk about what God has done for us. But that isn't what Paul says. What has he done in you? For you, in you. It hit me. This week. Started it last week. Now, while I recognize and affirm the focus of Christianity, what God has done for you, I am concerned that we have often neglected to emphasize the need that we as individual Christians have, what God has done in you. Paul was emphasizing here not just what God has done for you, but also what has God done in you. And there is a big difference. And as I get going on, you're going to say, well, we've heard that before. Yes, this is another way to get back at the same truth that I think is being emphasized throughout Scripture and definitely being emphasized by Paul. To me, Paul is writing that there is something that occurs in the life of an individual Christian between when we got saved and between when we get to heaven. We focus Christianity on getting saved. We focus Christianity on going to heaven. And those are necessary and should be our focus when we're talking to the world because they need to have something done for them. They need Jesus to save them from their sins and prepare them for a place called heaven. We need to focus on that. Don't you want to live forever and be with you, or do you want to go to the other place? No, I want to go to heaven. Well, this is how you got to do it. Boom. Jesus died on a cross to save you from your sin. He did that for you. So something happens, though, in you between the time we get saved and the time we get to heaven. Hmm. <laughs> And Christians need to think more about that need once we're saved. So what is the need of individual Christians? Think about it. God has done so much for each Christian, but what does God want to do in each Christian? How much are you and I allowing God to change us to become more like Jesus Christ between the moment of salvation and the moment when we get to heaven? How much? As one writer I read this week said, if salvation doesn't result in a changed life, if salvation doesn't result in a transformation, 
then what good is it? If you get saved and you're going to go to heaven and there's nothing different in between, what good is it? There's a date on a tombstone when you're born. There's a date on a tombstone when you die. But that's really not the important date. The important date is the dash in between. What did you do with your life? And so you get saved. That's the day you're born again. And you're going to go to heaven. That's the way you spend eternity with God. But what did you do in between? Or more importantly, what did God do in you in between? There should be a change, a transformation. There are two verbs we need to consider in this verse. Being confident of this very good thing, or this very thing, that he who has begun, so it's really one word, it's just a past tense, a good work in you will complete it, future tense, so it's still one really run word, Greek verb, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Has begun, will complete. Begun, complete. We use two words. We need the helpers to get the tense. Many languages don't need that. So two verbs. Has begun, will complete. Now, I don't expect you to know this. I didn't know it until I studied this passage. But Paul's Philippian readers would have caught the significance of these verbs immediately. Their culture, the Greeks and the Romans, had many gods, all kinds of them. You can read about the Roman gods. There's all kinds of legends and histories and stories and whatever, and even the Greek gods. There's even movies out about gods, right? And and their belief. And uh, as great as these gods are, they get in trouble, they kill each other, they have relationships with each other, just all kind of weird stuff. And, and you have to understand all of that and get it all figured out if you're a Roman or a Greek back then. Um, we just kind of take it all as mythology. So they had these gods, and so they would have festivals to these gods and, and, and so on. And they would have special occasions, and the whole town would turn out because this was the day to, to honor so-and-so and, or such-and-such. Female gods, male gods, whatever. The Greek words, when they would honor these gods, they'd have sacrifices. The Greek word for the beginning of a sacrifice to a Greek god, used in classical Greek language, is this word Paul uses for begun. The Greek word used at the end of the sacrificial proceeding to a pagan god, is the word he said completed. Very interesting. The Greek words, the verbs used for the beginning and ending of these pagan sacrifices are technical terms used in classical Greek writings. These two verbs are the exact Greek words Paul used in this letter, begun, complete. So Paul is obviously teaching And his readers would have got this right away, that every Christian is to be a sacrifice, offering him or herself to God. That salvation is the preparation for the sacrifice, the eternal life is the completion following the sacrifice, 
But the actual giving of the sacrifice is the giving of our lives to God's will while here on earth. Begun, start the sacrifice. Complete, sacrifice is completed. It's all burned up, it's gone. This is a powerful metaphor. The Philippians would have grabbed this immediately. However, because you and I don't see animal sacrifices very often, <laughs> I put in my Facebook post that, you know what? I've never even officiated at one, and I don't think I've ever seen one. I'm kind of glad I haven't. But because we don't deal with animal sacrifices like they did every day just about in their culture, if not every week, then we don't understand the significance of what it means to be a sacrifice. No big deal. What's that mean? Somebody kills an animal. All right. So this is not a new teaching for Paul or for the Philippians, but it would be pretty much a strange teaching for us. Paul wrote about this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable worship, and do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. He who has begun a sacrifice in you will one day complete that sacrifice and you will go to heaven. What does Paul mean when he wrote that Christians are to become a living sacrifice? An animal sacrifice was never a willing sacrifice. Why do you think that they housed them up in pens and put uh, ropes around their necks and dragged them in there? I mean, animals may be dumb, but I think that they kind of get the idea when they smell the burning flesh. I think they kind of get the idea that, well, my, my mom just died, if you mean, my, my brother they specially raise them to become sacrifices. So the animal wasn't willing. He was taken against its will. He's forced to the altar. They drag him. They're probably bleeding. They probably got a person pushing from behind and somebody yanking from the front. And they get him over there and they, they do their thing. They cut the throat or whatever they do, catch the blood. And, you know, all the different sacrifices probably had different things that they did. The Jewish sacrifices were pretty particular. Sometimes they would dismember them, cut them up, burn certain things, and toss other things aside. And in the Jewish sacrifices, they would heave some parts, and they would wave some parts. and <laughs> All very interesting. Had it all down pat. But the animal was not willing. A Christian, on the other hand, as a living sacrifice, is a person who is willing who voluntarily kneels every day before God and prays. 
They say something like, Father, I willingly surrender my life to you today. I will do whatever you ask me to do. I will change whatever you ask me to change in my life. I offer myself as a worship to you. I am a living sacrifice. So as the animal was taken down the altar and cut and slain and laid out there, you and I get on the altar alive. Right? That means I can get up and leave the altar whenever I want. I choose to be there. I choose to stay there. Or I choose to get up and go on with and do whatever I want in my own life. So animal sacrifices were dead sacrifices. That's the only way the animal would cooperate. <laughs> if it was alive, it wouldn't let itself be burned up. It wouldn't let itself blood spurting everywhere. No, it... it dismembered. They don't do that to live animals. And so it would be dead. That's why Paul emphasizes living sacrifices. Christian sacrifices are living sacrifices. That means we're not forced to offer our lives to God. We have to actually do the surrendering of our lives to God's will. And when we don't want to surrender, we crawl off the altar. We walk away from God's will for our lives and say, I've had enough of that, God. Today, I want to do what I want to do. You don't see that in an animal sacrifice. But you see it in Christians sometimes. Well, what happened to so-and-so? She used to be gung-ho for Jesus Christ. I mean, you couldn't stop her. Away she went. And, she... and now she hardly ever comes to church. Now, no longer involved in ministry. No longer doing things around the church. No longer, what happened? She got off the altar. As a living sacrifice, we can do that. But while we're on the altar, God's fire begins to work in our lives. That's why some people don't like to stay there. Because if you stay there, guess what? He daily burns away sinful desires, bad attitudes. I got to have my own way. I'm my selfishness. Oh, this bad habit. I got to get rid of that. God keeps working on us and making us better. You stick on the altar and God will work on you. That lustful desire, stick around. God will work on that. That bitterness, stick around. One thing's sad, and that's to see bitter people in the church. They're not on the altar. Lustful people, not on the altar. Selfish people, not on the altar. Bad attitude, not on the altar. It's quiet in here. Where was I?
Every day, you and I stay in the altar. He makes you through your surrender into a holier person. Why? So that you can become more like Christ, who was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I am crucified with Christ. Interesting verse, because then he says, nevertheless, I live. What? You're crucified? How do you live? Living sacrifice. I'm crucified, but I still live. It's just that Christ lives in me. And every day, I die daily, Paul says. Every day we give ourselves to the altar. So Christ doesn't do something just for us. He does something in us. And some Christians have stopped at being saved, and they've done, this is what God did for me. I'm saved. Now I'm in. I'm going to eternal life. But guess what? What does God want to do in you? In you. The focus of Christianity is salvation and eternal life. Those are the endpoints in our relationship with God. But between those endpoints is the daily need of each individual Christian. And that need is to surrender as a living sacrifice to the will of God. Part of the reason why Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. He surrendered again. So when we're saved, God begins a process of transformation in each person's life. But Jesus can only cleanse. The Holy Spirit can only come in and work in the areas in which we offer to him in surrender to his will. Get this, folks. Oh, I want you to transform my life. I'm a new creation. I go, woo, and they run for about a week. Some run for a month. This is so exciting. Look at that new Christian go. And the old people sit around, oh, they'll calm down after a while. Not a new Christian. They'll get over it. Then they'll be like the rest of us. I say, no, Run. Where's your passion? Keep that passion going. There's nothing worse than a Christian without any passion. So a month or two have gone by. God says, get on the altar. All right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the Christian gets down the altar and then God says, what about that thought? What about that attitude? What about that bad habit? What about this? What about that? He usually picks one thing. Now you hang around the church, the church people, they'll pick 20 for you. If you need, if you need work done on the altar, just ask your Christian neighbor. They can tell you five things that they think you could improve in, but don't try to improve them. It's not a share thing. You share me one of my faults, I'll share one of your faults. Yeah, like that's going to go over real well. So you get on the altar and God begins to deal with certain things. And so we begin to surrender. 
Some things we surrender, they're pretty easy for your particular personality. Other things are not so easy. So here we go, offer our surrender to God. What if we gave God our time and our tithe, but kept our rotten attitude? What if we gave up anger and jealousy, but kept lust? What if we became a missionary in another part of the world, serving the Lord, but that missionary kept wasting money with a bad gambling habit? They had to start embezzling or doing whatever to support their thing. What if we gave a million dollars to God's work? And then our pride insisted that that came with a caveat that if you don't put my name on the plaque, I'm not taking or giving my million dollars. It's interesting what area God will begin to probe in. And we think, no big deal. I do this, I do that, I tithe. But God says, well, what about that little attitude? What about that little thing? What about your pride? What about your jealousy? What about your attitude? Let me clean up your language. Let me clean up your life. Well, I'll do this, 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 and this, and this, but the cool thing is it's done in us, which means it's not something that we have to share with everybody else. And whatever God works on with me this week, he's working on Sam on a totally different issue. What does God want to do in you? In you. And sometimes sometimes I just want to be a partial sacrifice. But see, God doesn't want partial Marlin, partial pastor. He just doesn't want my mouth on Sundays and the rest of the week my foot can off, go off and do what it wants to do. He wants all of me. Every day. All the time. Devil sends in a thought. Should not be there. I have a choice. Stay on the altar, surrender it to God, move on. Let it dwell. You need to ponder, think about it, and create a problem. What good is a partial sacrifice to God? No, all of our lives need to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. It's not about me. It's always about him. It's not about you. It's always about him. It has to be that way, ladies and gentlemen. I am glad you're saved. I'm glad you're going to heaven. I want more people to get saved. I want more people to go to heaven. But what is God changing in your life today? What is God improving inside you today? What ministry is God using you today to accomplish? What is God doing in you? Instead of what is God doing for me? When I got saved, someone said, I gave it all. I got all of Jesus. But when I surrendered, Jesus got all of me.
Does Jesus have all of your life, your will, your thoughts, your attitudes, your emotions? Is he really in control? Think about it this way, because as hardworking Americans, most of us get upset about those that live in society who want to know what's going to be done for them. Come on. What's in it for me? What are you doing for me? What do I get out of this? How can I do the least amount and get all this? Don't tell me you ain't upset. It's been going on since Adam and Eve, probably. We want something done for us, as many people in society. And yet, these are the people who are not willing to do anything within themselves to change, right? To solve their needs. 20 years later, same place. What are you doing for me? Because if you ain't doing it for me, I'm going to get mad. What are you going to give to me today? Because you ain't doing it, I'm going I'm to protest. I see all these protesters that wander around the country, and I go, get a job. Why aren't you working? Who's got time to be protesting and busting up stuff and going through the country? It just bugs me. What are you going to do for me? Or I'm going to have a little fit, and you're all going to be scared, and so you're going to change all the rules, and you're going to let me get what I want. Do it for me, for me, for me. But they're not willing to change who they are to make life work. So that they become part of the solution instead of the part of the problem. They expect the government, the church, the community to meet their needs. They don't care what or who or where. They don't care that it's their working neighbor who's taking care of them. And paying their bills. Now imagine God's perspective. We come to God and altar prayer, get saved. What are you going to do for me, God? Oh, eternal life in heaven. That's pretty good. Thank you, God. What else are you going to do for me, God? God says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to get on an altar. I promise you, you get on that altar and open yourself up to me, I will begin to do stuff in you that will solve your problems. It'll solve that relationship you have with your wife. It'll, it'll help solve the way you treat your boss. It'll help solve the... Oh, I don't want to do that. I want my old ass stinking attitude. I want my old habit. It gets me through on the tough days. I want this. I want that. Oh, God, what can you do for me? God says, what can I do in you?
We don't seem to realize that what God does for us and what God does in us comes at a cost. And he paid the cost. He paid the cost. But God doesn't have our perspective. And I'm glad God doesn't have our perspective, or I wouldn't be here. Because God offers salvation. God offers eternal life through the death of his son. And he says it's for everyone. It is for you. That's God's perspective. It's a gift. My perspective is one-third of my income goes to others who don't seem to be grateful. God says 100% of what I give. And then when I think about that, then I say, okay. Then what do you want to do in me? Right? Because God goes the second mile, turns the other cheek, Gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. So what do you want to do in me, Lord, to make me more like you? So this verse is an unconditional promise. God will complete what he has begun in you. But there's a catch. This is the need that we have. Every Christian has this need. But God's never the one to force us. We are living sacrifices. We're not dragged to the altar. We walk down and sit down. Lay before him, what do you want to do in me today? Ooh, no, not that God. And God in his love draws you back. Why does he always come and pick on the same thing? No, not that. He picks on the same thing because you got to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from that sin, and you'll be able to go out and be a new Christian and have fellowship with him. Amen? That's why he keeps picking on that area. When are you going to give it up? I'm grateful that people come to this for church and find Jesus Christ, get saved, and then they give up bad habits. Aren't you grateful? We've got some right here. God has made them free. So we talk about those issues, those, oh yeah, I gave up cigarettes, I gave up drugs, I gave up alcohol, I gave up, you know, the, the big ones, and then we get down to, what about your attitudes? <laughs> okay, God, now you're meddling. What about making me a better person? Okay, God. Yeah. I'm waiting for the day somebody will stand up and say, God delivered me from an old grumpy grudge. God delivered me from pornography. 
Nobody knew about it, just going on in my own little mind over in my own little corner. God delivered me from a bad attitude towards my husband. I didn't say wife because, you know. This is a promise. God will complete what he has begun in you. The sacrifice begins. He will end it. You keep laying there. He's going to get through to the bottom of that particular issue until it's gone. And he sets it on fire and it burns up and it's out of your life. Praise God, it's gone. Cleanse me. If you expect God to complete what he started in saving you, then it's about time to yield to his plan and purpose for your life. Because if you don't surrender, do you really think that you're going to be ready for that holy place called heaven where there is no sin? There is no selfishness. There is no bad attitude. There is no excuse. That's just the way I am. None of that's going to be there, folks. So you might as well get on the altar and let God begin to work it out of your life. Let me just say this. Where is the passion of the individual Christian to be all in? Where's the passion? What can God do for me? What can God do for me? What can God do for me? Has become our passion. We should equally be passionate. Lord, what do you want to do in me? If you can be a better parent to those God has given you, don't you want to get on the altar? If you could be a better spouse, if you could be a better grandchild, uh, grandparent, if you could be a better teenager, if you could be whatever it is in your life, where is the passion that says, I want to go all in and get all that God has and have him just burn that out and remove this and get rid of that and put in this and add that and put in some more of this? What do you got for me today? Well, I'll give you more grace. I'll give you more patience. I'll give you more joy. I'll give you peace in the midst of this, whatever faces today in the storm. But to get that peace, you've got to let me take this attitude out that's stifling your peace. See, God wants to do it, but we keep preventing him. Surrender. Point number three, the confidence of Paul. He starts by saying, being confident of this very thing. Paul said, I am confident of this. That he who begins the sacrifice of your life will complete the sacrifice of your life till you get to that day in heaven. 
You see, Paul is confident that God, when he starts a work, will complete it. But what he's not confident in is that you and I will get on the altar. He didn't say, I'm confident in the Philippians. He says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. This is not eternal security. The confidence isn't in people. The confidence is in God. If we will stay there, God, I am confident, will do the work. If we'll yield ourselves to him, I'm confident God will make us better. If we will surrender, God will give you the passion to see it through. And I'm not talking about an easy thing to do here. But Paul said, I'm confident of this thing, that if God who saved us, God who's preparing heaven for us, he's able to cleanse us and make us better Christians as we travel through this earthly life. We don't have to just, I'm saved, heaven's my, my goal, I made it. No, get on the altar, folks. Become the living sacrifice. Allow God to work in, in, within you and make you prepared for heaven and so that your salvation isn't all there is, but you have a daily relationship with Jesus where he talks to you, he walks with you, he tells you you're his own. And he says, and what about that attitude you had on the phone yesterday? Another good thing about texting is you can text and they don't know what your attitude is until you put 15 exclamation points at the end and 16 emoji frowny faces. And My phone's got a thousand emojis. I never believed a person could. And it's crazy because I'll say, is that okay? And it'll show me a thumbs up and I can go... Appears on your screen. Or if you're happy, or, or I say, I'm getting hungry, boom, there's a hamburger. I sent Debbie with seven o'clock in the evening and she's working and I haven't had any supper, so I sent her an empty plate with fork and spoon. She said, ha ha, laugh out loud. LOL. There's an emoji about everything. What about all those attitudes and issues and whatever? I tell you what the secret is. You get here and God begins to work. There's usually one big thing. Nah, I'm not going to do that. Nah, I'm not going to do that. And usually when you finally get to that point, okay, God, take it. And when you win that battle, and God comes in and cleanses that thing out, guess what happens? All the rest of them, not so big. Right? Not so much. There's usually something, one thing. You know what it is. I'll do anything. I'll give up whatever. And God just keeps coming back to that. Because he knows if he gets that. He can do something in you. In you. So Paul is confident that if we get there, <laughs> but his confidence is not in people. It was in God. 
He who began a good work in you will be able to complete it. Paul was, Paul had, he had good friends. One of the saddest parts of his writing is when he writes in there, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul had good friends who gave up, who got off the altar and went back. His confidence is in people. God will finish the work he started in us only if we stay committed to a life of growth until the end of this life. Paul's confidence was based on, not in people, but on God. It's also based on his personal, real relationship he had with God. Paul knew how God had knocked him off his high horse and changed his direction in life. And as Paul surrendered to God's will, God gave him a new purpose in life. He faced all kinds of hardships. My, just, just read as he writes some of these letters of the shipwrecks and the, the floggings and the stonings and the beatings and the jail time and the... <sighs> but in all that, where did he stay? A living sacrifice on the altar, if you want me to go here, if they beat me, if they stone me, if they, whatever they do to me, Lord, it's okay. He was surrendered to God's will. And because of his constant surrender in his daily life, every day, Paul became one of the most influential Christians of all time. And today, Paul's in heaven. His journey's complete. He got saved, gave his life, God not only did something for him, God did something in Paul. In Paul. And we look at him and say, wow. And God keeps speaking to me. I want to do that in your life. He tells me he wants to do it in your life. He's telling you he wants to do it in your life. Oh, I'll never be a Paul. Don't be a Paul. Be a Sam, be a Sheila, be a Mary Sue. Be who you are in Christ. Let him do it in you. What he wants to do in you. Like Paul, we should have enough confidence in the God who provided for our salvation and eternal life that we turn in turn, allow him to change whatever he wants inside of us. Do you believe in that kind of a God? Do you have confidence in that kind of a God? This kind of a God. To allow him to work on you as you daily surrender to his will. As you put yourself on the altar. If he provided the salvation, he provides a home for us that we haven't even seen yet. Why can't he help us change? Do you have that confidence? Do you believe Jesus saved you? Do you believe God will soon take you to heaven? Then you also need to believe that God will do only what is best for you on the altar as you surrender as a living sacrifice to him today. He will only do what's best for you. Why do you want to carry on that bad habit? Why do you want to carry on that attitude? Why do you want to carry on that sin? Why do you want to keep carrying around that terrible thing? Why? Because Jesus wants to do a work in you that will clean you up forever. And sometimes it's not just what we did to ourselves, sometimes it's what somebody else did to us, right? And we got to get God to clean that out too. I have confidence in God's love. 
I have confidence in Jesus' death. I have confidence in the Spirit's power. I know God is helping me every week to be a better Christian. And so I want to surrender to God's will every day of my life for the rest of my life so that he who began the sacrifice of my life as I give it to him every day, will continue to work in me until I get to the end and he will complete it and I'm going to go to heaven. What a difference one word makes. Do this for me. Now, Lord, it's time to do something in me. We need to thank God for what he has done for you, but we also need to thank God for what he is doing in you. What area does God want to work on inside of you? That anger, that bitterness, that hatred, that envy, that laziness, that pride, that lust, that self-centeredness, that, those excuses, that disrespect, that disobedience, that judging, that impatience. I know I didn't list yours, but... To be honest, God has worked on most of those problems in my life. And to be honest, before this week is out, something's going to flare up. And I'm going to have to get on the altar and stay there and ask God to help me with it. It's the way we live, folks. Because if the devil can stir something up and get you all flared up and upset and bitter and upset and mad and jealous and... That ain't fair, that ain't right. And pretty soon you're going to say something, then you're going to have to go apologize for it. You're going to kick the cat, slam a door. That's door cussing, by the way. Oh, daddy came home. Boom. Oh, yeah, that's dead. Get on the altar. Give it to the Lord. And you're going to sneak in the house and you're going to say, what happened to Dad? The cat's running to hide and peeking out and the door's still on its hinges. I'm a work in progress. I have victory over these things today. But something's going to come up this week. It always does. And that's why I have to stay surrendered. That's why I have to stay cleansed. That's why the fire has to continue to purge and clean. <laughs> so between salvation and eternal life, there's transformation and cleansing. This is what God wants to do in you. Are you going to get on the altar? And allow him to work in your life. Praise team, come and sing. Let's begin to mind the Lord. You know what? For too long, we've treated the altars as a place of shame. That's where people go to get saved. They got sin in their lives. Ooh, look at him go down there. Ooh, shame, shame, bad boy. The altar is a place of victory. The altar is a place where you give yourself and allow God to work in you and change you and make you better. That's what the altar is. It's a place we ought to march down to and say, I want to give God something else today. Woo! I want God to work in my life today. It's, oh, no, shame, shame, shame. No. 
There ain't no shame. Anybody that seeks God is blessed. This is an altar of victory. This is an altar of blessing. If Satan's been writing you about something, I'll tell you how to get victory over it. Get on the altar and surrender it to God. Amen. It's a place of victory, ladies and gentlemen. It's a place Satan doesn't want you to come. So it's about time you defeat Satan and get off your high horse because I certainly don't want God to knock you off your high horse like he did to Paul. Right? So why don't you come? And all of us are going to say that person is seeking a deeper relationship with God or that person is praying for someone else. Don't think of it as shame. Think of it as good. That is great. That is awesome. All right, let's sing and let's... Lord, you're so good to us. You are good. That's who you are. We surrender to you today. We're confident, Lord, that you began something good in us and you are going to complete it. And Lord, today we surrender to you so you can do it inside of us. Another day another surrender to you. I surrender all. I surrender all. Lord, you heard our words today. Paul gave them to us. You anointed them. They went out. We thank you for that. For every response, we say thank you. Now, Lord, we just pray for those in Carolinas, we pray for those that are in the nursing homes and the hospitals. We pray for those that are hurting. We pray for the lost, our family and friends, community. We pray, oh God, that you would tear down walls, <laughs> bridge, bridge over the gaps. Lord, you begin to do a work in our world, in our community, in our homes, in our churches. Oh, God, begin in us. Begin in us. Begin in me. Begin in the people here at this church. I keep believing that somewhere, somehow, Salvation and holiness will begin to change people. And I'm praying, Lord, that you will do that in the name of Jesus. Change people. Change lives. So, Lord, we pray surrender today. I surrender to you, Lord. I surrender to you. Thank you, Lord, for that answer to prayer. Continue to work. Continue to work. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Be in our worship service. Amen. Amen. Amen.